This morning I want to begin a brief series as we work through this little letter known as Second Peter. I invite you to turn there if you're not there already. And this morning, in order to orient us, I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 15, though my intent this morning is really to begin by meditating on just the first two verses. I want to introduce the book and spend the remainder of our time meditating for a few moments with you on verses 1 and 2. But it will help acclimate us to the letter to read the first 15 verses. So let me begin by doing that. This is God's word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature." having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Amen. Let's pray at the beginning of our study of this letter. Oh God, we pause one more time to thank you for your word. And to ask, as we begin preaching Second Peter, that your Holy Spirit, as we just sang, would come, illuminate the Scriptures, shed light not only on the Word, but on our own hearts, and that you would transform us, and that we would live before you as a people after your own heart. 
bring about more godliness, Godwardness in us and among us as a result of studying this portion of your word. We ask sincerely and knowing that only you are sufficient to bring this about. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter is about to die. He tells us that in verse 14. He knows. Not only because Jesus told him, you remember that amazing scene on the seashore, Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire. And remember, Jesus, uh, Peter had jumped out of the boat to swim to see Jesus. Jesus had asked Peter if he loved him more than these. And um, he told Peter that one day someone would dress him in a way that he didn't want to be dressed. In other words, he alluded to the fact that Peter would be crucified. We know from church history that Peter was crucified. And Peter knows at this point that that word, that prophecy by his Lord is going to come true. He's writing during the reign of Nero, you might have heard of him. And church history tells us that Peter was martyred somewhere around AD 67, 68. It's about 40 years shy of since Christ died and ascended into heaven. And Peter is an old man now. He has gray hair, likely gray beard. And he is concerned about these believers. He's concerned about these churches as an apostle of Christ, as one who was a leader among the apostles. He is anxious to equip these believers, both Jews and Gentiles, churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And he writes in a way that we know that the Holy Spirit intended this for all believers in every time. He's concerned that as he approaches his death and as the church is now approaching 40 years old, I mean the church at large, that as the years go by, as the decades go by, as, as Christ has not yet returned for his people, as promised and as he will, and as false teachers are rise up and teach heresies. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us and that there will be false teachers who secretly introduce destructive heresies. He's watching this. He's seeing this. He's living in a, in a time, even in the early church, when there are men for various motives and equipped by Satan to infiltrate the churches who are teaching false doctrine. And in this letter, Peter seems especially concerned with the idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior, and put it in modern terms, and continue living on as you want. There is a, he's concerned that there's an abuse of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
He told, tells us, even in what we read this morning, that those who live carelessly, they're professing believers, but those who live in ungodliness, in a worldly way, they forget who they are. They despise the grace of God. And Peter's greatly concerned. That resonates, in my thinking, with our day. And I wish I could say that that this danger is just out there somewhere. It's not. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. Worldliness, that is, living your life according to the desires and the opinions of the world is like for us is like gravity as long as you live in this fallen world as long as you have a sinful nature and believer you still do you've been born again you've been given a new heart but yet there still is within you that remaining and dwelling sin and so the temptation the pull to live apart from God or to live in ways that are careless about God and his law and his ways. To really not think about what pleases him, but to live what pleases me or what pleases my family. That pull is like gravity. It's constant and it is strong. And it takes effort to resist. Peter is issuing in this letter a call to godly living. See this in chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In verse 6 and 7, in that list that we'll look at perhaps next Lord's Day, amidst the various virtues, at the heart of it is godliness in verse 6. With perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And then at the close of the letter in chapter 3, verse 11, in light of the coming of the day of the Lord, the judgment of God upon this earth, the reckoning that's coming, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things, he's talking about the earth and all creation are to be destroyed with this fire under the judgment of God, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. The letter is a call to godliness. Godliness is one of those words that, if if you've been a Christian for some amount of time, you think, well, yeah, that's good to be godly. That's good. Godliness is a good thing. But we don't maybe think, how how do you break that down? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, we're going to learn in this letter but let me try to provide a one definition to be godly is to live unto god i could say live for god but i like that unto because godliness has a direction it's a it's a bent of the heart this time of year you if you're planting in your garden or if you're planting Um, some kind of bush you know that they need sunlight or tree and you know if you've been around growing things 
that most of them, that if there's an opening of sunlight, those branches are going to grow in the leaves in the direction of the sunlight. You may look at some plants and they're actually misshapen because all of the branches or the leaves noticeably go in one direction, reaching towards the sun. Godliness is living unto God or toward God. In other words, it speaks of a bent or a direction of our life. We go about our lives. We all have responsibilities. We have jobs. We have work around home. We have a way to make a living, to provide for our home. We have school, maybe. We have service. We have things that we enjoy doing that God gave to us, and we are free in Christ to do. But godliness is in and through all of that living is a life that is lived unto God, loving and reverencing him. This is my definition. To live unto God, loving and reverencing him by learning and doing what pleases him. Period. To live unto God, loving and reverencing him by learning and doing what pleases him. Godliness is a call to love God. How easy it is to be a Christian, to have professed faith in Christ once upon a time, to go on and slowly but surely, maybe not slowly, but most often maybe slowly over time, to come to a place where you realize, you know, I actually don't think about God very much. I sing songs about Jesus on Sundays when we gather together, but when I leave church, to be honest, I think about my work, I think about my projects, what I want to do, the people in my life, but I, I, I don't really have many thoughts towards God or Jesus in my moments. We're to love him. We are to love God. That, that call, that command to love the Lord your God, it's... it's still there. If God saved you, if God called you to be a Christian, he called you to love him and reverence him. Uh, Peter's concern in this letter is a careless kind of Christian living, a, a sensuality. Chapter 2, verse 2, these false teachers follow their sensuality. They're full of greed. They're professing to be Christians, and yet they live carelessly. They they live immoral lives. And even if it's not blatant immorality, and that can be certainly present among Christians, professing Christians, there can be in our thought life, our online time, what we watch, what we listen to. Oh, no, is Pastor Gabe going to say we can't watch movies? I didn't say that. You, you, I'm sorry, I just have to pause here aside. It is so interesting that in our day and age, if you even get within a mile of suggesting that some things are off limits for Christians, immediately warning signs go off. Legalism, legalism, legalism. You know what I'm talking about? So I just had to note that. It still is true. Yeah, some things are off limits for Christians. That's Peter's concern. 
is if you love God, if you're living unto God, you can't just live how you want. You just can't think how you want to think. Your thoughts are not your own. You can't watch whatever you want. You can't listen to whatever you want. You can't, your life is not your own. You've been, in the words of Paul, bought with a price. It's a call to godliness. Another way of putting this is we are elected unto holiness. You might have heard a sermon about that sometime recently. Last Sunday, Jimmy, that was his sermon. Were you here? I listened to most of it. In other words, that God chooses us in his kindness and grace to holiness. Ephesians 1.4, this was Jimmy Snowden's text last Sunday morning, I believe, says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. God desires holiness and righteous living to characterize those who confess his son. Call to holiness. I need to hear this call. You need to hear this call. Again, there can be a drift. There can be a pull. And maybe where once you had a fire in your heart for the Lord, where maybe once you were sensitive to certain things that now you've become careless to. It can be in some cases that as you grow as a Christian in learning what is pleasing to the Lord, that there are some things that become acceptable to you because you learn that they're not inherently displeasing to the Lord. But, but once upon a time, even if maybe you're, you weren't as informed, maybe you were more sensitive. Maybe you were burdened more. I, I don't want to do anything that would displease my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought me with his precious blood. And, and maybe now we're becoming increasingly just professing Christians who, who know the profession with our mouth, but know little of the power, of the love, of the affection. Peter, ultimately the Holy Spirit, who wrote this letter, by Peter, is calling us back to our first love, is calling us to a life of holiness. Well, where do we begin? Well, that's my sermon title this morning, so hopefully I can help. The beginnings of godliness. The beginnings. Um, This is where we start. A few starting points. Where do we begin? And I want to begin at the beginning of the letter and just reflect for a few moments on the richness of verses 1 and 2. First, the first beginnings or the first beginning of holiness, of godliness, of the starting point in our text this morning is humility. Assuming that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we go back to humility. And I have three aspects or points under this first point of humility. But I want to, what I'm reflecting on is, is in verse 1, Peter. Peter, again, is near the end of his life. And now, not only is he an old man, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Second Peter, he is a humble man. 
He is a humble man. And it was not always the case, was it? That was not always the case. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, you don't need to turn there. One of numerous times, apparently, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Peter was usually the spokesman for the group. The text doesn't tell us, but it's at least likely that Peter was the one going on behalf of the rest of the disciples to Jesus and sincerely, sincerely asking Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And apparently he was thinking inwardly that he was in, he was in the running. And that became apparent later in Matthew 26, where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and telling them that they're all going to fall away. And Peter says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I think there was some sincere love and affection for Jesus there. And it was sincere. But there was still in Peter's heart and mind a tremendous overestimation of his own ability. He had a tremendous overestimation of his own power, of his own character, of his own ability to get something done spiritually. But by this point, what do we find? We find him introducing himself as a bondservant, literally slave. It's the word doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting he puts it in that order. It's not coincidental. He's an apostle. And among the apostles, he's really preeminent. And yet he introduces himself in this letter, calling other Christians to godliness as Simon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, it can be difficult for us when we hear that word slave because we immediately associate it with the horrors of of ethnic slavery in our own country's history. And slavery in the Roman Empire could be horrible, and in most instances was. But throughout history, slaves were often treated well. They were part of the family. They were bound to their masters. The slave relationship is one of being owned by God, owned by Christ, bought. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. And Peter understands this. He's not his own man. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. And here's where we got to begin. If we want to be godly, we need to start by remembering As we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we went from being a slave of the evil one. You thought you were on your own? Here in New Hampshire, we like to think we're our independence, independent nothing. Live free or die, I love the slogan, but the fact is there is not one single person in this state who lives free. And no, it's not because of who's in office in politics. You are either a slave in the domain of darkness or you are a slave of the kingdom of light. One of two options, everybody fits into one of those two categories. Slave of Jesus Christ. That's my job. I have other titles. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here. But one day I will no longer be pastor. I won't be a pastor forever. Whatever your job is, you'll have it for a while. You'll put it down. 
But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you believed, you became a slave. And that's not merely speaks of your duty. It speaks of honor. To be a slave of Jesus Christ is a great honor. You are part of the royal household. You are his ambassador. You are his servant. I, I don't, shouldn't have anything to be associated with Jesus Christ. It's not a burden to be his slave. I belong. I should be a slave of the evil one because of my own wretched heart. But God purchases me and makes me one of his son's privileged, honored servants and slaves. Wow. We are slaves of Jesus Christ like Peter, bought by Christ with the currency of his own blood. That's humbling. How quickly we become puffed up. How quickly we forget who we are. How quickly we think we're our own man, our own woman. That our lives are our lives to do with what we want. We can make our decisions however we want. No, we are slaves of Christ. I am not my own. And you aren't either. I'm an owned man and you're an owned man or woman. That's humbling. But something to be embraced. That's the way to godliness. And it's actually quite freeing. Slavery in Christ is actually freeing. (laughs) It makes things pretty simple. My life's work, the sum total of my job, is to do what is pleasing to my master. Pretty simple. And it can be hard sometimes, and it can be challenging, but that's wonderfully freeing. I'm not my own. That determines everything I do. That's the first step of godliness. Humility, we are slaves of Christ A second aspect of humility that's revealed here in verse 1 is that this will help us in our humility. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant of apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a like faith, same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. this is, this is a, a small observation, but I think it's important. Peter, actually, in verse 1, the first word there, Simon, is, in the original text, Greek, is Simeon. There's only one other, that's, that's the Hebrew form of Peter's original name, before Jesus named him Peter, Rock. Simeon. Peter actually writes Simeon here. Now, Simon is most often used in the New Testament. That's the Greek form of his name. But here in Acts 15, Peter is referred to as by his Hebrew name, Simeon. I think that's interesting. He's an apostle. He knew Christ face to face, and he's a Jew, and he's highlighting his Jewishness here. But he's writing to those, verse 1, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Another help in humility, I'm actually adding a point here, so we're going to have four, is, uh, I've, I thought of this earlier, so I'm not thinking of this right now. This other is, remember your relation to others in Christ. You are a slave of Jesus Christ, and you're not the only one. Go figure. That your brothers and sisters have received a like faith. You're one of countless that Christ has purchased. Thirdly, 
your faith under this point of humility, your faith was a gift. That's humbling. Look at verse 1. This is explosive. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have received a faith. Received a faith. The word faith in the New Testament sometimes can refer to, refer to the body of truth, the doctrine, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Faith can also mean the act of believing or the fact of believing. The reality that you are a believing person. And that's the, what Peter is referring to here. That the faith that you have, that, that subjective faith, that your act of believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, that even that faith, you received it. Yes, you believe. That's right. You have a mind. Yes, you have a will. But you never, ever would have expressed that faith if God hadn't given it to you. Oh, is that humbling? Who have received a faith. Faith itself is a gift of God. Jesus is a gift of God. His death on the cross is a gift of God. But even the faith with which you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a gift of God. And verse 1 makes it exceptionally clear. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. There is no righteousness or goodness in us to produce this kind of God-pleasing faith So where does it come from? It comes from God. And specifically in verse 1, this is fascinating. We have received this faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a relationship between the reality of your believing, having a saving faith, and the righteousness of Christ. Now, by believing in Jesus Christ, we know... The good news of the gospel is that God credits your sins to Christ and he paid for them on the cross. And those who believe in Jesus, God imputes or credits the righteousness of Christ to them so that they are justified, declare righteous in the sight of God. But here is a mystery and a glory of the work of Christ that part of the righteousness of Christ, verse 1 who is our God and Savior, part of his righteousness, it was his righteous work, his righteous life, by which he secured our faith. Else, how would it be right of God to grant faith to you, a sinner? What right do you have to that? You say, well, God can just choose. Well, that's true. He's sovereign, but God cannot do anything that is unrighteous. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your saving faith itself is a righteous act. And it is Christ by way of his life and by way of his sin atoning death secures the salvation of his people even securing, verse 1, the faith by which his people are united to him. That's humbling. I can't even take credit for my faith. I mean, it is your faith and it is my faith. And we are called and stirred up to 
be zealous in our faith. But the simple point is, where'd you get that faith? Where'd you get it? Did you come up with that? All these people out here who don't have any interest in God, don't have any conviction of sin, don't have any interest in Jesus, it was your smarts? You were, you were different than them? That's what made you different? Not, well, not me. Grace. We sang about it this morning. I, again, I didn't, that song, Relentless Love, as we were singing, I thought, wow, that's, that's a lot more timely than I even anticipated. That relentless love of God that would not be denied. Wow. That's humbling. We are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of Christ along with other believers who have received a similar faith. Our faith itself is a gift. And finally, under this first point of humility, don't worry, the sermon's not going to go on very much longer. I don't have ten points. Ten sub-points, maybe, but... Jesus is your God and Savior. That's humbling, verse 1. So, again, we're talking about the beginnings of godliness and beginning of humility, and we're looking at material in verse 1 that is evidence of humility and truths that humble us. And here is a great truth that humbles us. Jesus is God. This is a declaration of Christ's deity at the end of verse 1. Often in the New Testament, when God is referred, to, the word God is often um, clear in the context, a reference to God the Father. But here, both God and Savior are used as descriptives of Christ, of Jesus. He is God, one with the Father. And sometimes we who sing about Jesus, who is our Savior, and who became a man for us, sometimes we forget that he is God. Bow before him. Humble yourself before him. That's humbling. He's God. He's our God. That's humbling. It's humbling to be in the presence of God. That's a good first beginnings of godliness is humility. And there's more than a sufficient material to help us with that. And we've only looked at one little verse. Uh, Secondly, this morning, a second overall provision of humility is found in verse 2. This greeting is typical of the New Testament letters. We can glance over it and read through it quickly. But I want to encourage you that verse 2, grace and peace, is another beginning of godliness. Humility and this grace and peace, which is, which is two words, but really one heart and intent of God. Some of us, we hear talk about godliness, and we even hear Peter's letter, and we start to feel afraid. We start to be afraid of maybe what we perceive as legalism or as being under a constant cloud of guilt and condemnation. And we have built in this idea that the grace of God means we're saved and um, we just kind of go along our way and we'll make it to the end. And the idea of actually working and being diligent, as Peter says, at 
living godly, learning what's pleasing to God, turning from what's displeasing to God, maybe changing our behavior, maybe changing our thinking. Some of us, that scares us. Maybe we think, oh no, here comes the condemnation. I, where's the grace again? I, 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 I can't handle this uh, command. Well, that's, that's a lie from Satan. It is true that God will, is obviously calling us to godliness. It's true that we're going to have to turn from wrong thinking, wrong behaviors. It's true that it's going to require some work. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about godly living. It's going to take diligence, Peter says. But it's founded upon this, grace and peace. Through calling us to godliness, God is intending our grace and our peace, that we know his grace and we know his peace. Just a few observations about this grace and peace. First, through faith in Christ, we have grace and peace with God. We don't have to work for it. Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is your birthright as a believer. You are no longer at enmity with God. You are in a new relationship. You are not condemned. There is no condemnation. He is not your judge in terms of the one who will condemn you. You are in Christ You are related to God as a son or a daughter to a father. He loves you. And yet, he calls you to himself, and he is holy, and he is pure, and he is king, and he has ways of living and how we are to to live and how we are to think. And the enemy and our own treacherous souls can tend to think, well, that's onerous, that's difficult, that's going to lead to my misery. No. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And here's the main thing I want to point out about verse 2. God intends multiplied grace and peace towards you. Have you ever let that sink in? Why else would most of the New Testament letters begin with grace and peace be multiplied? Actually, Grace and peace to you, usually Paul would say, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says here, grace and peace be multiplied, abounded. Your experience of the grace, the unmerited grace and the shalom, the the settled life-giving peace of God be multiplied to you in abundance. That's God's intent. He's not looking for you to be miserable. Jesus said, I came so that they might have misery and misery abundant because they're going to be godly and it's going to be sour and dour, whatever dour means. And, 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 and I'm going to clam them in and there's going to be this list of things they can't do and they're going to make it across the line. No, what? I came so they might have life and have it abundantly. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's a lie from the pit of hell that godliness means absence of grace and peace. It's the exact opposite. The way of godliness is the way of knowing joy of God's grace and God's peace. And this is his intent. This is his desire. 
in all the commands and the exhortations that the Holy Spirit will give us in this letter. The intent for us, yes, is to live in a way that honors God, but so that we as his people know his grace and his peace. That's the longing, the yearning of God towards you, believer. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. The call to godliness is a call to grace and peace. And grace and peace, finally, verse 2, will be multiplied to you and to me as we grow in the knowledge of our God and Father and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Knowing him here, not merely doctrinally, and that's very important, and we spend a lot of time on that around here, knowing God according to his word, doctrinally, according various truths about him, theology, but knowing him rightly in terms of objective truths and knowing him as we live unto him. Knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, not just as a set of truths on a page, but as the living God that he is. Living unto him, living with him, living for him. So that as we wake, so that as we go through our day, as we lie in our bed at night, like David, we call upon him. Yes, God is very aware of your day and of mine. He knows all the stuff that you have to deal with. He really does. And he's calling us to live unto him in the midst of all that. And it's not impossible. Else he wouldn't call us to it. In fact, it's not only possible, but it's there where we meet God and we experience his grace and peace. This is the call Again, the godliness is a call to grace and peace. And to close, I want to close with the last verse of the letter. He refers here, Peter, to believers as the beloved in verse 17. And then the last verse is a call but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace will be multiplied as we grow in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Would you pray with me that in the coming weeks that God would let us hear his call to godliness And that the Spirit, as we sang earlier, might come and shine upon his people, change us, transform us, and help us to live unto God. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask your forgiveness for our stupid pride. And forgive us for too often in the hidden places of our hearts entertaining the idea that that your way of, of living is burdensome.
That too is stupid because we try to live according to the world and that certainly doesn't bring grace and peace. So we pray that in the coming weeks that you would bless your people as we hear a call to godliness and we pray that you would extend that call and that it would be not merely an external but an internal effectual call like the call to salvation we pray O god that the call to sanctification and godliness in this day would be powerful we pray that you'd find us willing to change and work where we need to and we pray that the motive for all these things will not be some external cheap form of religion but that it will be love for you, our Father, and love for you, Lord Jesus, the one who bought us with his blood. Thank you so much now that we can come to your table in a few moments and remember that you shed your blood for us and that you have entered into a new covenant with us where you remember our sins no more and give us a new heart. Activate that new heart anew, we pray, for your glory and honor. Amen.